Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This week on our panel, we have Will Button. What's going on, everybody? We also have Jillian Rowe. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from topendevs.com. This week, we are going to be talking about whether or not DevOps engineers need to know how to code. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. You suggested this topic, so I'm going to kind of let you give us a little bit of context. Like what triggered this? What made you think, oh, this we need to talk about this? Or, I mean, are you running into people that are going, I don't don't need code? I, I don't know. Yeah, the question actually comes up a lot over on my YouTube channel, DevOps for Developers, people who are interested in pursuing a career in DevOps or have heard about it and want to learn more about it. And so one of the questions that commonly comes up is, if I do this DevOps thing, do I have to learn how to code? And I think another thing that drives this is there's a lot of the boot camps now are offering multiple career paths. There's the software engineering career path that they've had for a while, and now they're adding the DevOps career path to it. And so it's leading to a lot of questions. And um, I thought it was a really good topic because I think there's a lot of pros and cons to whether or not DevOps engineers should know how to code. So I thought it'd be a good thing to talk about. I'm curious, Jillian, what do you think? I think I'm going to give my favorite answer, which is it depends. Like it depends on how (laughs) close to the users you are. Are I know, I know. See, everybody loves it. Yes, yes, I am. It's also my favorite answer to clients, too. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, it really does depend. It depends on how close to the users you're going to be. Are you really going to be the kind of support staff that is interacting interacting directly with the application developers? Do you want more of a, like, almost like a data engineering route? Because now that's kind of another question, too, is that we're seeing all these titles come up, and I don't really feel like DevOps is an especially useful title. So now it's kind of being split out a little bit. So now we have like data engineers and ML ops was one that I heard last week. I guess that's a thing and DevOps and <laughs> software engineers. And um, yeah, I don't, so it depends like where on that spectrum you want to be, who you're going to be working with. Are you going to be in an IT organization or in a research institute? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to address a little bit of that. Just we've discussed ML ops and data science and data scientists and how all that goes together on adventures in machine learning. So Folks are interested in that kind of stuff. Go check out that show. We've got we've done a couple episodes where we talked about uh, ML ops and, and things like that. But it's interesting because uh, I worked in operations for a while part time when I was going to college, and then I wound up doing some uh, tech support before finally you know moving over to QA. But when what twenty years ago, whatever however long ago I was doing IT, I mean, it was twenty years ago. You know, a lot of it, you didn't really need to know how to code because effectively it was just you'd pop the CDs in or do a PXE boot onto your machine, right? And you were just setting up machines. And so that kind of work, didn't really need to know how to code. 
you know, as we kind of pulled some other stuff together, still didn't really need to know how to code. You just had to know how to use the package manager and a lot of the command line stuff, right? A few things that I eventually wound up getting into that did wind up needing code. Uh, one of them was is they were running Red Hat servers at work and all the Red Hat servers could go over the internet to get updated on their own. But some of them were behind different firewalls because they belonged to different departments within the university and things like that, right? And so what I wound up orchestrating was I wrote some bash scripts that would actually rsync the updates over and then run them locally in order to make that work, right? And so then I had one or two servers that would just go and grab the the updates and pull down the RPM packages and make that run. And it was all bash, right? So, and I don't know if people really count that as programming because you type in bash while you're on the command line anyway. But for me, it felt like it was, right? Because you you did have to essentially script out what had to happen. And so again, you know, we're starting to get into this grayish area all the way up to like infrastructure as code, where it seems pretty obvious that you'd have to know how to code in whatever for Ansible or, or Chef or whatever. So yeah, your answer, it depends. I think it does. I think it depends on what your role is and, and where you're working. Yeah. And I started off kind of on the other side where I started off as a data analyst and then I started to get interested in coding. So then I was just like running around to all the people in the lab and anytime they did anything that I felt should be automated, I would just go and like start to write scripts, which at the time were mostly Perl and Bash to go and automate some of these processes to download data. And then over time, I couldn't fit everything on my own computer. So I had to go talk to the IT people about hoisting stuff off on them and their computers but they didn't want for me to cause them extra work. So then I had to learn how to manage the servers. So I think since I came from that other side of things, I had to learn to code as I was going along. Mm-hmm. And that's because I was in a, you know, a very like user support type role where I was supporting right. the researchers and their work. Yeah. Well, we've kind of let you introduce it and then we gave our opinions. What What's your opinion? Do DevOps engineers need to know how to code? I think in the long run, the answer is yes. I don't think it's a barrier to starting a career in DevOps, but it's something that you're going to want to pick up as you progress throughout your career. And for me, you know, a large part of what I do in DevOps or DevOps related tasks is supporting the development team, helping them write better, faster, more efficient, more scalable code. And so I think where programming skills have helped me the most is whenever I'm working with those teams and they they need to do something to make their application more resilient, you know, like they're trying to build out the metrics to know when it's time to auto scale based on application specific metrics or create a logging solution where they can create logs and send them off to a, a logging facility somewhere. And helping them with that, a lot of times that's written in, it's just written as part of their application, you know, whether it's a Node.js API server or a Python server or Go or whatever. And so being able to meet with them on their terms and look at the code that they're writing. So I built the backend infrastructure that they're trying to implement. And then being able to understand the code that they're using to implement that, I think has been a a huge asset for me. And I think that's probably my biggest reason for learning to code, maybe, you know, probably not at a level that someone who writes that language day in and day out is going to be at, but being able to look at the code, understand it and rationalize it to help them achieve whatever goal they're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to kind of meet people where they're at and be able to understand the actual problems they're trying to solve and how they're trying to implement it. Because I found the same thing where I'll go talk to people and they'll explain to me what they're doing. 
And then I realized like, oh, you're almost writing like a load balancer in here. And we can, you don't have to do that. Like we can, like that exists. We can do that for you. And then, you know, and then everybody walks away happy because they don't like, they don't have to write it anymore and they get a load balancer and that solves the problem that they were trying to solve. Just maybe they didn't even know that it existed. And if I hadn't been able to talk to them about their code, I wouldn't have known that they were trying to solve that problem in their code. Yeah, I I think we're kind of all aiming toward the same idea, right? Where, yeah, you can get in at a certain level and not have to know how to code, but you'll get to the point where you begin to enable all kinds of stuff by being able to code, right? By understanding what options you have. And so you'll get a layer deeper and then another layer deeper and another layer deeper. And all of that is code. And so in order to understand what's there, you have to understand code and be able to write code. Yeah, and I think it just saves you heartache and frustration in the long run. You know, like Jillian was mentioning, working with someone, finding out that they're trying to reinvent the load balancer. It's kind of surprising how often Mm -hmm. scenarios like that come up where they're trying to solve a problem. And, you know, you're like, hey, you know, this has been built into the Linux operating system for about 30 years. So we really don't have to reinvent (laughs) that. But they had no idea. So right. They're just trying to solve a problem. And I think that's where being able to meet them where they already are saves future pain. Yeah. For that example, though, it seems like it's more a function of experience or familiarity than necessarily ability to code in that case. Yeah. Yeah, true. that's true. Yeah. That was, uh, I'm not coding up a load balancer. So I, I went on AWS and pressed the load balancer button there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So that's not require any code. I've also found on the DevOps side, I mean, even saying I think that you, need to know how to code is, you know, I mean, then then we have to get into kind of defining know how to code. I think if you understand like essentially like a for loop and you understand like a little bit of the templating languages, like for instance, the Python templating language, was it called Jinja? Is the one that's used for Ansible and at least a couple of other ones. And so I know some people that came from an IT background that really they just learned that. So that's that's all that they know and that's fine. And that's plenty to that's plenty for what they're doing and to get started. And actually carry them quite a long way to not even just start. So if let, let's say you get to the point where you are, yeah, maybe you're programming Ansible, you're programming against, say, a Kubernetes cluster, you're programming against some other infrastructure's code setup. Are there specific languages that are more useful to learn than others? Or is it more the concepts like you said, Jillian, where it's like, well, I understand the for loop or I understand how this kind of looks like this or this. And so... I think, it, yeah, again, it really depends. I would say like whatever, whatever the people are using is the most useful thing to use. So if you're, if you're working with, you know, like an enterprise IT, you probably want to know Java. If you're working with the data science group, you probably want to know Python or R. I found like for myself specifically, if I'm working with IT people, I tend to just put everything in bash because then they understand it. And I use like the bats, you know, the bats testing framework. I love that, by the way. That just, I just, I love the bats testing framework. Or, and then when I work with application people, I'll write it in a PyTest. And I'm like, look, I made you happy. I put it in your, you know, in your language of choice here. So, yeah, I mean, again, I think it really just comes back to this idea of meeting, like, go meet people where they're at. I agree. I think if you are trying to learn your first programming language, I, I think Python's a great one to choose just because it seems like the learning curve there is lower, you know, not that it's a, not that it's a a simple language by any means, but I think for a lot of people just to look at it and start writing it, you can get productive 
a lot more quickly than uh, than some of the other languages. And then a lot of the DevOps tools that we have either implement or use Python as well. So I think that's always a good first choice if you don't end up choosing whatever tool your team that you're supporting is using like Java or Node.js or whatever that is. You yeah, keep I saying like Java, but... Ugh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There must be some people out there who like Java. We just haven't met any of them yet. So I wanted to second this point with uh, Python being easy to learn. I think one thing that makes it really accessible to people is the Python console. The fact that you can just type, or uh, in particular IPython, you can just type that into a terminal and get put into like an actually useful environment. You can start to import libraries and it has like at least a little bit of code completion for you. So at least being able to just get people to that point is, is something at least. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot and of whenever you have that though. I mean, you can do that with JavaScript, you can do it with Ruby, you can do it with Listen, I don't know compiled, like, other languages. Yeah, some of the other compiled The farther away I get from a terminal, the more uncomfortable I become. Yeah, I think another thing that works in Python's favor is just pretty much installed everywhere already. Mm-hmm. I think every operating system includes some distribution of Python with it. And maybe Python 3 has been out for, what, 20 years now? Maybe in another 20, we'll finally retire Python 2. But until then, I mean, you've still got both options available to you. Yeah. The tooling around Python, I don't want this to be a like, yay, Python show, but like the tooling around Python is quite nice as well. Like, for example, if you need to create a Python package, there are like templates that you can use that will just bootstrap the whole package for you. Uh, you know, you got like Jupyter Notebooks. So you have you have a very nice tooling ecosystem, I think, with Python that makes it very user friendly. Yeah, I have to say that I don't have a ton of experience with Python. Most of my experience is with Ruby or JavaScript, but it's the same kind of thing, right? Whether you're building an NPM package or Ruby gem and, and they have the, the REPL, the read, execute, print loop or the interactive command line, basically, where you can run commands. And so, yeah, you know, all of those, the, the options are great, right? And most systems also include a JavaScript runtime somewhere. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I did a little bit of Ruby when I was learning. I think Puppet. Puppet used Ruby, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, Puppet yeah. and Shuffle. Yep. So, so, yeah, so you get in. I'm curious what kinds of things have you guys been able to, I guess, automate or have you with, make easier with being able to code? I mean, you mentioned logging, I think, Will. Yeah, I did. Logging is one as far as getting away from, especially if you go into a containerized environment, there's a strong tendency to just write everything to standard out, but you can go one step beyond that. In particular, I'm thinking of this one place where we had Splunk. And so we just changed the default logger in the application so that it would write directly out to Splunk instead of just going to standard out and then trying to capture capture those logs in standard out. And that gave the developers some additional tools like being able to tag logs as they were being sent to Splunk, which then made it easier for them to find the logs that they were looking for whenever they were Mm -hmm. searching. And another place that that's come in handy is in application metrics integrating with something like Datadog, you know, you grab the Datadog library, add it to your application, and then start instrumenting your application so that the metrics go to Datadog. And again, much like Splunk, you can tag those metrics and create dashboards based on those tags. And that's all done inside the application code itself. So it it made it a lot easier being able to look at the Node.js code that they were writing in this particular instance and help them structure that code in a way that made the end result 
easier to find and, and navigate. That makes sense. How about you, Jillian? How, how have you used coding in your consulting or other things? I would say pretty much everything having to do with parallel computing, because, which I guess is sort of getting us into the, you know, into that kind of gray area between DevOps and now there's data engineering. Was that a thing like a couple of years ago? Because I don't, I'm not sure that it was. All right. But that, that's mm. kind of a side tangent. Was it? What do you think? Do you want to vote real quick? Was it? Yes or no? It's definitely something that's been growing quite a bit. And especially as things have come up with machine learning and other systems, I mean, it's much more common now. A few years ago, I think I think it did exist. I think I think data warehousing is something that's been around for years and years and years and years. That's but, true. Data warehousing is something that I heard. But the the flip side of that is is that it was usually pretty well focused around specific business outcomes, and you were only gathering specific types of information. Whereas now, it feels like you gather as much information as you can into your data lake, and then you go back through it as needed. Right. So you're collecting a lot more. And then you're making targeted decisions depending on the outcome you want. And so it, it's changed in that way as opposed to, yeah, where, where it was even 15 or 20 years ago where you had a data warehouse and you'd put information in that you thought you might use in the future, but you were pretty deliberate about what you put in and you knew what kinds of things you were going to measure out of it. Yeah, that's good. That was very succinct. I like that. So yeah, I think like everything on the... Like if you have anything to do with parallel computing, I mean, that's, again, the side where you really have to understand both what is needed from the application's point of view as well as what's needed from the DevOps. So, for example, MPI, right? So we used to write this thing called MPI that would allow calculations to go across multiple computers. And that was, I mean, it's still used today, but it's the technology that's used quite a bit in HPC and high-performance computing. And so you had to understand, like, where in the code people needed to be able to parallelize and then you also needed to understand like the infrastructure and the way that the system was actually set up so that you could get the most performance out of that code. So that was a really big one. And now we have these kind of these newer libraries like, uh, you know, Dask and Python or Apache Spark for I think Spark is for what Java are and Python that have a very similar idea. You're still doing parallel computing. You still need to understand where you should put it in your application to get the most point of, you know, to get like the most impact out of it. But then you also need to understand uh, from the infrastructure side how many, you know, how many compute nodes you have or how many work nodes you have, how many CPUs they have. Like, how should you be spreading this out? Is it better to, you know, kind of get everything into one CPU rather than multiple? Uh, I do think a lot of work is being done, actually, in that area, which I find really, really interesting. So in particular, if you have something like a DAS cluster on Kubernetes, you can set it up to automatically scale up and down. And it just knows how much computation is coming in, and then it will scale it up and down based on the need. So you could say, I want to have like from one one Dask worker node to 100 Dask worker nodes, and just say like, well, have at it, Dask, and it will automatically scale up or down based on need. But I think that's another point where you know the engineers of Dask are saying, well, we need to meet people where they are. Maybe they don't want to have to go talk to the sysadmins in HPC to get their code working properly. And I, I can never imagine why that would be the case. But let's just say they don't. That's just crazy. You know, we need to meet them. Oh, crazy <laughs> talk, right? You know, we need to meet them where they're at. Wouldn't it be so much easier if they could just set a minimum and a maximum and it would just scale up and down as needed? And then, okay, so then to implement something like that, what do you need to know? You need to know Kubernetes so that you can get that kind of auto-scaling cluster. And then if you're on Amazon, despite the fact that it is called Elastic Kubernetes Service, you actually have to enable the pod auto-scaling or the node auto-scaling rather, which I did not know at first. And that 
that was a very upsetting day for me. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's where I'm at with that. Um, also, just I work with quite a lot of biotech startups, which I think is really, really interesting because I love the fact that kind of the onset of cloud computing has allowed scientists to just kind of go out there and be consultants and do their own things and start their own companies. But they tend to have these kind of IT systems sort of set up that are a bit like ad hoc. And I, again, they created on the fly because they didn't know these other systems were around. You know, even things like like networked file storage, like guys, network file storage is a thing. You don't have to sync, uh, like sync files back and forth between your different servers. We can just, just have a shared directory and it can be there. Things like that. Again, things with um, setting up load balancing. Yeah, just a lot of that kind of like really typical IT sort of stuff you see can be kind of offloaded onto these guys that want to go out for themselves and instead of hiring an IT department or an entire data center, we'll just spin it up on the cloud instead. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. So I think one of the other places that the ability to write code has been cool, it's a project I'm currently working on, and it, it parallels very closely to what Jillian was just talking about. So it's these data scientists who have these data sets that this application goes out and queries all of these different places for data, pulls it back into a combined data set, and then they want to do their analysis on it. But most of the analysis is not something that they can run locally. So normally you would run Jupyter Notebook, you know, and that bring comes up on localhost. That doesn't work for these guys. So we built this system for them that when their data set's complete and ready to go, they can click a launch button that goes out and launches a Jupyter notebook environment on Kubernetes for them and then returns the URL to that notebook. And so that tied into a lot of things there, you know, integrating with their application that gets the data set, but then also interacting with Kubernetes through an application that we built. But then the, the thing that you're doing with Kubernetes is you're building a dynamic environment because they can specify the amount of GPUs, the amount of CPU resources, how much memory they want, and then also specify which ones of these data sets get mounted inside of that Jupyter Notebook. So we used a Jenja template there. So the entire Kubernetes manifest that contains the stateful set and the ingress and the service and the containers inside of those services is all a Jenja template that we pass those parameters into that. Then that gets sent off to Kubernetes, gets launched, and whenever it's complete, gives them the URL back. And so I think that's a really, it was an interesting application, but it also highlights the need to be able to read, understand, and write code because you take all of these technologies of um, uh, mounted file systems and your, your typical network infrastructure plus some message queuing, plus some API calls and the Kubernetes API and Jinja templating to create this one, what appears to be a seamless application for them. 
That is really interesting. Do you use cookie cutter for that? Because cookie cutter is like my favorite Python package pretty much of all time. No, I'm not familiar with cookie cutter. What is that? Oh, it's neat. So you can define like a JSON file with all of your variables, and then you can set up your Jinja template. And then you just point cookie cutter with your configure with like your JSON file to a directory that has your Jinja templates. And then it just like it will recursively auto-populate the whole thing for you. Even if you have file names that are themselves templated. I know, I know. See, that's how I built out a whole Docker matrix this week. Like 80, it's got 80 so far, and it's gonna have more using that package. And that was how I did it, was that I just have a JSON file using cookie cutter, and then I just I tell cookie cutter, go forth and create my build matrix. Oh, right on. I'm going to have to check that out. Oh, you should. No, it's very, I use it all the time. It's a really great package. And then there's also, there's a really neat startup. They're called Saturn Cloud. I think it's SaturnCloud.io. And they do something very similar to what you guys do with like this dynamically spinning up the the desk and the, the Jupyter Hub notebooks and all that kind of thing. And then they also integrate with some other environments as well. Right on. Cool. So one other thing that I'm curious about, and this is something that comes up quite a bit in Adventures in Machine Learning, is that, and Ben Wilson is the one that kind of beats this drum, but not just being able to code, but being able to code well, right? Following good coding practices, writing tests for your code, things like that. Do you find that that's a struggle in DevOps? Get people to pick up some of those practices or some of those capabilities as well? Is it is it mostly ad hoc code, or do you see people actually figuring out how to write maintainable systems? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be my too. I could smell that one coming away. <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, you just kind of teed it up there. It's like I know. Like, I, I got to swing at that. I think whenever it comes to writing application code, I think if you show someone with a DevOps background. This is going to be part of the application. Here's the test suite. I think they are pretty agreeable to that, mainly because they're the ones or they have the, the likelihood of being the ones to suffer the fallout from that. If you do a bad deploy because something went out into production that wasn't covered by a test, your DevOps people are the ones that are on call. So they definitely get the understand the value of having well-tested code. I think the caveat to that might be in having tests for things like infrastructure as code, just because that's a pretty challenging task to to have tests around that stuff. Because some of that stuff, if you're launching Kubernetes environments with your infra as code, it can be really challenging to test that that code does what it's supposed to do. And so I think the testing, for me at least, falls short in those areas. Like one time I was on this project where I was working on a DevOps project with some people from a software engineering background, but we were going to be handing it off to the IT team. So one of the things I was really trying to be like, no, 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 we we need more tests because, you know, I have a, at least a little bit of a software background. So if you come to me and you message me in Slack and you're like, Jillian, go test that database connection and make sure it works. I'm going to be like, oh yeah, sure, whatever, and I'll go test it. But if you tell the IT guy that, you know, that conversation is not going to go quite as well for you as maybe is perhaps maybe you think that it will. So then we wound up having, and this wasn't infrastructure as code, I think it was a Terraform project. So we just wound up writing like all these BATS tests to be like, yes, we can connect to the database. And and we actually wound up catching, you know, some things through that where just like little things like where we thought we were getting the correct configuration variable from Terraform and we weren't. So we had to like switch it around and stuff like that. But I found, yeah, overall the IT guys, they really want, the kind of tests that I think the software people maybe even overlook a little bit, which is very interesting. That is interesting. I mean, coming from 
a primarily coding background. I know plenty of programmers that don't like to write tests. They don't like to kind of do the best practices. I mean, they write decent code because they practice, I guess, on a regular basis. But it's it's interesting just to see how many folks get in and then don't realize, hey, you know, I can test this. I can make sure it works. I can make sure that this looks right. And I've seen, depending on what kind of system you're using also, just different kinds of test harnesses for infrastructure as code. But it really varies from tool to tool and from system to system. So to the degree that you can, I think it's a positive thing because you at least get some kind of verification that your code works. And then you can put it on a continuous integration, just like your your applications. And then from there, you get that feedback that you can use. So Yeah, that's one of the things that I think since they've come up the last couple of episodes of the tree helps with in mm-hmm. identifying those configuration issues and uh, and syntax errors early on before you try to actually deploy your code. Yep. And I was just on their website today. I'm, gonna, I'm deploying some clusters next week and I'm going to be all over that. Nice. I've been using it since we had them on the podcast here. I've actually been using it and I, I like it a lot. It does. It looks yeah. quite nice. I like that they have the Helm plugin. So I'm pretty stoked for that. And not to turn it into a, a sponsored sounding show, but <laughs> I, I ran into I haven't some gotten issues. anybody yet. <laughs> I ran into some issues with it. And so I went to, I was on their GitHub repo and just opened up a, an issue on the GitHub repo saying, Hey, was trying to do this and expecting this response and got a response right away with, with the solution to that problem. Oh, that's nice. good. I only yeah. use projects where the people are nice. If they're jerks, I'm like, nope, <laughs> cut me off. Right. <laughs> well, it's nice too when you can get an answer pretty fast. I mean, there are some products that I've used in the past where it's like, we'll get back to you in 24 to 48 hours. And so what that tells me is, well, I'm going to be bumming around the internet for the next three hours because I need it to work tonight. Right. You yeah. need it to work five hours ago. Yeah. So. That only makes me upset when it's paid support, though. That's the only thing I'll complain about. If I paid extra for support because I wanted like faster mm-hmm. support and I don't get faster support, that's something I'll complain about. Ordinarily, I try not to complain about like the customer service stuff, except for that. I've been on the other end of that. So if if they set that expectation up front, yeah. I might be frustrated because I'm going to be spending more time seeing if I can find the answer myself. And sometimes they get back to you faster than that. But yeah, yeah. after I graduated from college, my first job was actually running a tech support department for a year and a half. And it was the customer tech support. So anyway. Nice. um, That should be a rite of passage. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, I think everybody should have to work in customer service. Like really everybody at some point, you should have to work in like a restaurant or IT or, you know, something. Yeah. Yeah, well, and on the software and DevOps end, it'd be nice to yeah have people. It's like eighty percent of the stuff that's going to float in is going to be the same stuff, right? And then the other twenty percent is the weird stuff. So if you understand that, it's like, look, we can reduce ops's or customer services load by, by half just by solving a handful of issues. So right, I digress. Are there other aspects of coding as DevOps engineers that we want to dive into? I, I think from my perspective, there's really like the two facets that we've been talking about. There's writing infrastructure style code, code to do DevOps things, and then writing code or working with the code that the software engineering teams are writing to build your application and, and helping them architect that so that it utilizes the infrastructure that you've built as a DevOps engineer. I also think anecdotally, like some people that I've been working with over the year, who maybe years who have come from like one side or the other, maybe they've even come from like a science background and have gotten more into code, or I worked in IT for a while. So, you know, even some of the IT guys learned to code. 
it did all very good things for their career trajectory. So I'm going to have to say that overall, I recommend it. You know, go learn at least a little bit, make some for loops, declare some variables. You'll be you'll be well on your way there. Because really, you don't need to know a lot to like really start solving problems. When I started all this, like I was doing macros in Excel and I was extremely impressed with myself. You know, and that was solving actual <laughs> problems that the labs were having. So you don't need to know much to be dangerous. Just go learn some. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm I don't think there's a downside. In. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just chime in and, and uh, pile on. I think it's a skill that opens up opportunities and you can transform, you can control, you can manage data coming in and out. But also a lot of these systems offer APIs that you can use to enable your stuff. So. Yeah, I think that's a good point as well. Like now that everything has become so much more API driven. So, you know, like Rancher is a system for deploying Kubernetes, and I like them. I have nothing but good things to say about Rancher. They also offer an API. So, you know, presumably you could start to offer these services where you're building these dynamic clusters. And how are you doing that? You're doing that through the Rancher API. Yep. Yeah, so just, you know, all things to consider. All right. Well, I'm going to push this over toward picks then. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Will, are you still around? Do you want to start us off with picks? Well, Jillian, why don't you do picks? And then we'll see if he's back. And then I'll do picks. Sure. So I learned something that I thought was pretty cool this week. Apparently, you can host your SaaS product on and other products too, but for the minute, we'll just talk about SaaS on AWS. And I think that is really, really, really cool and interesting, mostly because I am trying to deploy a SaaS and I've been talking about it for like a year. And I did not know that you could just host it um, on AWS in such a way that AWS would take care of all the billing. So what happens is you register it with AWS and people like register for the product through AWS and then they pay AWS and then AWS pays you, which is really, really cool because that means that I don't have to deal with people's procurement departments. And I just, I really like that as a lifestyle <laughs> choice. I think I'm going to, you know, that really like gave me some motivation to go work on my SaaS. So um, yeah, that's, that's my pick for the week is if you're interested in, I think in particular, like the data science kind of fields or maybe some of the more IT services, it seems like those are gaining a lot of traction on the AWS SaaS marketplace. Nice. I hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense, right? Because then it just shows up on their AWS bill. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it completely makes sense. It's just that I had never considered it. I knew you could sell like, you can create like custom Amy's, the Amazon machine images, and you can sell those. And if you want to, you can attach a price tag to them. So I knew about that, but I just, I didn't know that you could actually create a whole SaaS product and have people like sign up and register through AWS and then, you know, the AWS people pay you, which is really pretty nice, especially for like enterprise clients, because they're all on AWS anyways. Or the people that I work with are on AWS and they have AWS budgets. And I just want a piece cool. of that. <laughs> I just want a piece <laughs> of AWS budgets. There you go. Will, so you know, do you have some picks for us? I do. So my first pick is a tool called Native, K-N-A-T-I-V-E, 
it's enterprise grade serverless for Kubernetes. And I wish I, I wish I had known about this about a year ago when I first started the project that I'm currently on. Cause I like Lambda functions and the whole, there's just a lot of really cool things you can do with that, but only if you're in AWS or Azure or one of the cloud providers. So native brings that to your local Kubernetes cluster, which I thought was a really cool thing to have. And then the other thing, for my pick is the Kabuki Shoulder Rock Loadable Mace. So I've been playing with kettlebells a lot lately, and then I stumbled across this thing. And it's basically think of a barbell with a weight on one end of it. And I've been using that for shoulder mobility and just like stretching out and working on core strength strength and things like that. And that's been a lot of fun. And then my last pick is, would you pass a DevOps interview? So I built this quiz on my website, and actually, this is the second version of it. The first version um, was the same thing. Would you pass a DevOps interview? But it was like 70 questions, and I got some feedback from from some people, and they're like, dude, chill out. So this is version two of the quiz where it's down to nine questions, but I think it still captures the gist of it. So it's pretty cool. Check that out. Would you pass a DevOps interview? Take the quiz, and then it lets you know what your um, your skill level is as to whether or not you are DevOps ready. Awesome. I'm going to throw out a few picks of my own. So first of all, I think I kind of teased it at the beginning of the show. DevChat.tv is becoming topendevs.com. A lot of stuff going to be coming out here over the next year related to that. You know, we're going to be expanding beyond podcasts. Really excited about that. One of the things that I am going to be putting out there here within the next week, this is the other pick, is I have people asking me how to start launch podcasts, right? So that's whether you have a consulting firm or whether you're trying to just go to the next level and get speaking gigs or you want to do coaching or mentoring, you can kind of open up all kinds of possibilities there with podcasting. It's also turned out to be a really terrific way to meet people and meet the people that I need to get a particular job that I want or meet people who can mentor me and help me level up on my skills. I mean, there are so many benefits to it. Um, and it's, it's just opened up so many possibilities. So if you're kind of trying to look for a way to take your career to the next level, find freelance clients, I've done all of that stuff with this. I'm also selling courses and stuff like that. And so if you're at that place and you want to put together podcasts, go to podcastbootcamp.io. Now I'm only taking 25 students. So you want to get in before it fills up. The course starts on the 14th of September. So you're also a little bit uh, time box there as well to get in before it starts. Uh, that way you don't have to play catch up. But yeah, definitely go check it out, podcastbootcamp.io. And yeah, in four weeks, we'll have you up and running with your own podcast. We'll help you get things set up so you sound really great, so that your interviews sound great. If you're doing interviews or just on your own, you sound great if you're just up by yourself and help you figure out what your show's about, who's going to be on it, and what that content needs to be. And like I said, just get like awesome quality sound out of it. So yeah, that's uh, podcastbootcamp.io. And then... I just barely finished this week the Rhythm of War book by Brandon Sanderson. So if you're looking for a great fantasy novel, Stormlight Archives is a, a series of those. First one is The Way of Kings. Really, really enjoyed those. The readers on Audible are terrific. And so uh, that's the way I've been consuming nice. them. But I really, really enjoy that. So Did you know the readers uh, are gonna... married? I think that's adorable. Oh, they are? Yeah, isn't that They true? are? Yeah. I'm Michael Kramer sure. and Kate Redding? Yeah. I've always thought that was so cute. I had no idea. <laughs> well, either way, they're terrific. So pretty happy about that. So those are my picks. Right on. And I guess, I guess given all that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Until next time, folks, Max out. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.